Good morning, everyone. Sorry I can't be uh, with you this morning. Um, I'm going to have to uh, give you the sermon um, by a recording because, uh, unfortunately, I've come down with COVID this morning. Um, it's good to be here with you, at least in this way, uh, because I'm really keen uh, to speak with you about our topic for this morning. Uh, we're in the middle of a six-part series, and it's uh, an overview of the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, which we're calling Kingdom. It's a picture view, really, a big picture view of God's kingdom. Now, the Bible is, of course, one big book with uh, 66 little books, of which the Old Testament has 39 books, and it's about three quarters of the Bible in total. So obviously, it's an important uh, book in terms of the overall uh, Bible. Uh, we're going to give you like a, a skeleton so that you know, when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading one of the books of the Old Testament, we want you to be able to understand where it fits into the big picture story. And, uh, and maybe also, of course, when we're preaching, so that you can understand with uh, the book that we're preaching, how that fits in to the overall uh, story uh, that the Old Testament and New Testament bring together. Now, there's also a Bible study uh, guide that comes along with this series. You can grab it off our website or uh, grab one. There are some at the iHub as well. Let's pray. Lord, our Father, we thank you for all uh, of your word, particularly the Old Testament this morning. All of your words are so important and so helpful to us. They give us life. Help us to really marvel and delight in your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the story so far, of course, over the past two weeks, Pastor Devon has uh, looked at how the uh, God's kingdom began. And it began, of course, in a perfect way in Genesis 1 with creation, uh, where God created the first human beings, Adam and Eve, uh, who lived perfectly in uh, God's place that he'd made for them, the whole universe, and in particular, the Garden of Eden. As they enjoyed God's perfect rule and blessing, uh, they cared for the world that God had made for them. So they were ruling over it really on God's behalf. Uh, but then uh, things went rather badly wrong in Genesis chapter 3, where people who were made in God's image, they, well, they sinned. Adam and Eve were tempted by the servant Satan and they disobeyed God. And they fell away from the perfection in which God had made them. Um, and they were banished from the garden. And uh, they had to uh, live outside of God's presence. Now, I want to ask you, what would you have done if you were Adam and Eve? Or if you were one of the people who came after them? How would you have fixed this problem, the problem of sin? Adam and Eve obviously had actually experienced living literally in God's presence. They knew effectively what heaven is like. I mean, they would have told uh, their children and the others who came after them, wouldn't you want to get back to that to be able to live in God's presence again? So let's see. You know, sin obviously came into the world because Adam and Eve, they didn't listen to God. Yeah, they disobeyed God, obviously, and they failed to resist 
the temptation that Satan brought to them. So, I mean, all we have to do, obviously, is obey God and uh, resist temptation. No problem. We can do that, can't we? Well, we can try, can't we? We can try and try harder. Everyone, you know, could maybe do their best. I mean, have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to stop sinning in your life, uh, in your thoughts, as well as in the words that you speak and the actions that you do? Not doing anything wrong at all, let's say for, I don't know, at least maybe a day. Well, I tried that and I found that it didn't work. So I tried harder. I locked myself away from people and from devices and distractions and just concentrated on uh, reading God's word and uh, spending time in prayer. Uh, But, you know, the mind, the mind is an incredible thing. It does all kinds of things to you. And it seemed that even trying to, you know, not do what I knew was wrong, it's um, just impossible for me. It seemed to be part of my nature. My fallen nature was to sin. And I worked out, you know, that, that sin, sin is really like quicksand. All of your efforts uh, just make things worse, actually. And you just sink deeper into it. You need outside help in order to pull you out. You can't do it yourself. So let's get back to uh, Genesis. Now, uh, Genesis means origin, it means creation or the beginning. And this is where it all starts. Now, after the fall, Adam and Eve, um, God gives one positive statement to them in Genesis chapter 3. And that comes from Genesis 3.15. It says, God said to the servant, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Here we just get really a glimpse. Uh, It tells us that God has a way to fix this problem. And uh, at some time in the future, God will send his saviour in the form of a human being, a son of Eve, to rescue his fallen people. Um, and to you know, destroy the evil one as well. And this is really an image of uh, Jesus coming as a son of a woman, dying on the cross and crushing Satan in doing that. And uh, because, you see, uh, none of this caught God by surprise. God knows the weaknesses of the human heart. He knows the weakness of the human will. Even before Uh, uh, he created the world. God had this rescue plan all in mind. It tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 4 to 5, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of, of his will. God has an eternal plan to save his people and to restore creation again to perfection. Um, 
But what happens after Genesis chapter 3? Not much that's good, unfortunately. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve, they had children, and the first children were Cain uh, and Abel. Uh, Cain is a man who gets angry, and, and God says to him in verse 7, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. But Cain goes and uh, kills his brother Abel, and God puts him under a curse uh, that the ground would no longer yield its crop to him. Uh, then after many generations, lots of people on the earth, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds a bit like today, really, doesn't it? It was really bad. God's patience uh, runs out, so he destroys all of the sinners in the world in his judgment. The whole world, except for Noah and his family. Because Noah walked with God as a righteous man, blameless, it says, compared to his generation. But it's not that Noah wasn't a sinner. So why Noah? Why did God choose Noah? It tells us in Genesis chapter 6, and uh, verse 8, Noah found favour. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So God tells Noah that he'll rescue Noah and his family from the total destruction that he's going to bring, the worldwide uh, flood, and uh, that he'll do that by an ark. So Noah believes God and builds the ark. And God commits uh, at the end of that that he will never again destroy the earth by a flood. So when we see a rainbow, when I see a rainbow, I'm really comforted by that because it reminds me of God's incredible promise, his promise actually to save us from our sins. I remember how God held back his anger against sin. He saved Noah and his family so that he could deal with sin for us instead of us having to deal with it ourselves, he was eventually going to send Jesus. Uh, then sin seems to again come to a high point in Genesis chapter 11 with the people uh, all just speaking one language together. It says in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's what people often want to do, isn't it? To make a name for themselves. People wanting to build the kingdom of man, their own kingdom, a, a man-centered civilization without God there. A tower with its top in the heavens, just like when Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Evil, uh, the Garden of Eden. You know, the people... All of mankind, they were joined together, not united to God, but rather united in order to resist God. And they lived there in a single city so that they wouldn't be scattered. I mean, how would they be able to fulfill God's purpose in Genesis 1.28 to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion over the whole of the earth if they weren't willing to go to the ends of the earth themselves. You know, instead of being blessed by God, they wanted to make a name for themselves. 
It's man trying to be his own God, leaving the Lord totally out of the picture, building a tower um, that was all about their own pride in themselves. Uh, then we move on to the promised kingdom of God. The Tower of Babel, really, I see that as a, a background to God's promise to Abraham. In the story of Noah, we see uh, sin and then judgment, but it's followed by God's wonderful grace. In the Tower of Babel, we see their sin and judgment, uh, but not grace at that point. We have to wait another generation uh, to see God's promise to Abraham, to, to see God's grace that comes through this promise, that he's going to reverse the judgment from the Tower of Babel. Now, when we first hear of uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter 11, he's the son of uh, Terah, and uh, he names his son Abram. Now, it's only later in uh, Genesis chapter 17 that God changes his name to Abraham. So just to make it a bit easier for me, I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham. So we see in Genesis chapter 11 where God calls Abraham, who was obviously a descendant of Noah, like all of us are, of course, uh, and he was a descendant of Noah through his son Shem. Uh, he was the son of a, an idolater um, who didn't know God at all. So it's really God's initiative in calling Abraham, calling him into a relationship with God, uh, and then God makes these three wonderful promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. First of all, that God will make Abraham and his descendants, uh, that he will give them the promised land of Canaan, a promise that seems to last even to this day. Secondly, that Abraham uh, will have many descendants, as numerous as the sands on the seashore or as the stars in the sky who are going to become a nation with many mighty kings. And thirdly, that God will bring blessing and redemption to all the nations through Abraham's descendants. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. It's the beginning, really, of a covenant of grace where, where God specifically saves people for himself. And it's an everlasting covenant. It extends all the way to the kingdom of Christ and beyond. And it's not only for Israel, it's for all people. It's for everyone. Everyone will have access to the kingdom of God through the Messiah, who will be a descendant of Abraham. And this promise will reverse all the effects of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. It's going to bring salvation to us all. John Stott put it like this. It may be true, it may be truly said without exaggeration that not only the rest of the Old Testament, but the whole of the New Testament are an outworking of these promises that God gave to Abraham. Now then we move on to Genesis 15. And here we have uh, the ceremony. It's a covenant ceremony uh, where God um, confirms his covenant between him and Abraham. And in the ceremony, it's interesting that it's God alone who walks uh, between the halves of the animals, 
while Abraham, in fact, is asleep. And this shows that the covenant is binding on God. It's an unconditional promise that God makes to Abraham and to his descendants. God is the one who takes the responsibility for the covenant. And that's good to know that God and that God alone will make this happen, will make sure that this covenant is fulfilled. It doesn't depend at all on Abraham or on anyone else. And then we move on to Genesis chapter 17. This is about 25 years after Genesis 12, after God first made his promise to Abraham. Abraham is now 99 years old, and he's still waiting for God to start his promise by providing a son for him and for Sarah. You know, faith is hard, and we need to be patient with what God has in mind for us. And you might think um, that Abraham trusting in God, his trust was uh, perhaps failing at this time a little bit, but God here reaffirms again his commitment to Abraham. And uh, then uh, the greatest promise of all he makes here in, in uh, verse 8 of chapter 17, he says, I will be their God. Now, this statement is repeated many times by the prophets of Israel. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33, it says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that's a refrain that they have again and again, that uh, he will be our God and we shall be his people. And this talks fundamentally about the relationship between Abraham's descendants and God. They really belong together. Uh, later in this chapter, in verses 9 to 14, God gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, the sign of circumcision. As it says in Romans chapter 4 and verse 11, it was a sign of the faith he'd already shown in God's promise. Just like today, uh, when we get baptised, it's a sign of the faith that we have already placed in Jesus Christ. Then we move on in Genesis 17 to verse 21, where God tells Abraham that he'll give him a son next year. And this is when God's promise will begin, when they have a son called Isaac, uh, where, who comes from Abraham and from Sarah's very own flesh. At the ages of 190 years old, he's born then a little bit later in Genesis chapter 21. As of today, Abraham's covenant has been fulfilled in part. Uh, the nation of Israel was born and they've been preserved over many centuries, really. Uh, other nations also came from Abraham. And the name Abraham is admired by so many people in the world today, particularly, of course, by the Jews, by Christians and Muslims as well. But, you know, the greatest fulfillment of this uh, covenant that God made with Abraham is in Jesus. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. 
Paul's not saying that the promises work for the rest of Abraham's descendants, but the focus, he's saying, of God's promise was in this one particular offspring, Jesus Christ. And as we see, when we look at the ministry and the work of Jesus, uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 1, uh, he tracks Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Abraham. So Jesus becomes the focus of God's promise to Abraham. As God said to Abraham, and he knew all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this has happened through his offspring, Jesus. And his promise of blessing, this blessing of the kingdom of God is based on faith. We see it in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6, when God showed Abraham all the stars in the sky and he said, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And Abraham, it says, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You see, Abraham's faith shows us that the kingdom of God, the promised kingdom of God is received by faith alone. Galatians chapter 3 and verses 7 to 9 tells us that Christians today who put their faith in Jesus, that we are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. We are his descendants by faith. So what did we see in the life of Jesus that shows this to us? Yeah, I mean, why, why did Jesus come? What was his purpose? What was his message that uh, he gave uh, in his day? I mean, lots of people, I think that the teaching of Jesus is centered on his teaching about love. But really, the core message of Jesus, we see it in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. And that those words, the kingdom of God, it's used about 53 times in the Gospels. And that the kingdom of heaven is used 31 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's almost always on the lips of Jesus. For example, Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this very purpose. The coming of Jesus was a great step in the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The kingdom of God is now nearer than ever. We're drawing closer to creation again, living under God's rule and blessing. The promise to Abraham will reverse all the things that happened at the Tower of Babel. It's a promise that's going to reverse the fall of Adam and Eve. And uh, the rest of the Bible really is all about telling us how uh, this promised kingdom of God happens. So what does all of this mean for us today? Let me tell you something about myself. It might seem a little bit strange, but, um, you know, strange for a person like myself who's had a kidney transplant, but actually I don't really like doctors and I hate going to hospital and I hate having operations. I've had a few. So what would you have thought if I said, well, forget about the doctors. I'm just going to do this kidney transplant myself. I mean, I'll cut myself up, I'll just stitch up this kidney 
into me and all will be right. I don't need doctors to help me do it. Well, you're right. Uh, the operation, I don't think, would have gone very well at all. And I probably wouldn't be here today. I'd still be on dialysis or maybe a whole lot worse. But just, just like me, not trusting in doctors, so many people today refuse to trust God. They'd rather be self-reliant. They think they can deal with their problems, with their sin themselves, fix themselves up as if I can be my own God. I can do it. But remember, you know, sin is like quicksand. It's all around us. It's thick and it's heavy. And the more that we try to get out of it ourselves, the deeper into it we go. But we've got a promise, a promise from God, a promise that culminated in Jesus Christ, the only one who can pull us out of our lives of sin. Stop trying to do it yourself. Trust in the promise that God has given to us. Trust in Jesus. Only he can do it for us. R.C. Scroll put it like this. He said, I don't always feel his presence, but God's promises don't depend on my feelings. They rest on God's integrity. You know, I trust in the promise of God because I know him and I know that I can trust him. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we bow before you today and we give you thanks for making us in your very own image. You're so good and loving and kind to us. Thank you that you uh, don't leave us in our sins, but you make a way out for us. And you gave us your very own son, Jesus. Help us today to live by your word and to live by all the promises that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.